It's episode 78 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Fien. Today on the program is longtime independent Apple developer, James Thompson. He's created beloved software like PCalc and DragThing, and we talk about his journey in the Apple ecosystem and how to break out of the code and let people know what you're working on. James, thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. I have to say, I looked at your your list of previous guests and I had that immediate, I'm not worthy <laughs> moment, but it, it is a pleasure to be asked to be on. Well, I'll tell you what, like, I, I do tend to focus more on people who practice design it professionally and, and that's their sort of their vocation and stuff like that. But, uh, but I do like to have people on that have different experiences, but often brush against the same discipline. And I think, I think you know, you've got this long history of being both independent developer, but also I, I don't, I don't think you're quite a, a shop of one, a team of one, but you do primarily all of the development work. Isn't that right? Yeah. Um, my, my wife, uh, handles basically all the business and paper side yes. of the business. And I do the kind of the development, the design, the marketing, the support, you know, the, you have to wear a great deal of hats, uh, as an independent developer. Yeah, I want to dig into some of that. But before we do, I just kind of a little bit on a personal note, I wanted to take a, take a moment. Um, are, you, are you a fan of the, the band Rush? Yeah, I mean, I, I like their songs. And, you know, I was as sad as anyone to see uh, passing of Neil Peart. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's, I think, a fact uh, a factor of us getting old, but this seems to be happening a lot more than I would like right now. <laughs> I, re- I, I can remember when my parents started saying that, you know, like when Elvis and some of their old, like, 50s rock stars were going off, uh, that they were saying, like, oh, it seems to be happening a lot more. And I'm like, oh, all right, we're kind of getting to that stage where the people that were important to us in our developmental years, I think, are, yeah. are not dying, you know? Um, but I'll t- I... You know, for me, like Rush was this pivotal band. Uh, there, there was a time really before the internet, you know, when being geeky or nerdy, it really did. You know, it sounds like a trope now or a cliche, but, but it meant being sort of on the outside or at least feeling like you're on the outside. Uh, and Rush was this super nerdy, geeky, progressive rock band uh, that embraced all of that, the weird and the, the, the incredibly intricate, detailed music and stuff like that was nowhere near uh any of the like top 40 or pop or or anything like that uh but i would go you know when i was young uh to a rush concert and see thousands of people who didn't fit in and i think for me it really changed what it meant to to mm-hmm. fit in you know i'm like how can they fill an arena with 20,000 people if this is music that like nobody listens to and is super you know nerdy so uh and then you know neil as this i would say the world's most technically proficient drummer like just making this outrageous music with these crazy time signatures and unbelievable drum fills uh, and just being able to see that live. I was very fortunate that I went with my brothers, both of my brothers, uh, and we went and saw the very last Rush show in 2016 in L.A. Um, and, uh, and it was hugely emotional. Like, oh, they're done. They're going to go. I didn't think, you know, Neil was only 67. I didn't think he'd go so quickly. But um, I don't know. It's very important to me. I needed yeah. a little moment to, to let that to let that go. I've definitely had a number of times where I've thought when I see a band that are coming through Glasgow and I'll think I should go and see these people, you know, because how many other chances am I going to get? Yeah. Um, like Jean-Michel Jarre was somebody, yeah. uh, uh, similarly sort of very influential in my uh, musical upbringing. And he, w- he was coming through Glasgow a year or two ago and I was like, oh, I'm definitely going to see him. But he looked like he was 
probably in his 30s because he was jumping around the stage. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was the thing. Uh, you know, every all the Rush fans were like, well, maybe they'll tour again, maybe they'll tour again. And Neil Peart was like, no, I wrote that music when I was in my 20s and 30s. I can't play it now that I'm in my 60s. <laughs> he was like, yeah, That's, it's just not physically possible for me anymore, so I'm done. I'm retired. So, um, yeah. So, anyway, there goes Rush. But, um, yeah, so you said you're from Glasgow. Yes, um, uh, born born and bred here. Uh, apart from four years living in Ireland, which we will get to later. No, oh. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, th- this is this is my home, and I, I'm actually living almost within sight of the university where I went and studied uh, computing science for my degree. Wow! So it, it feels like I haven't moved very far. No, no, but um, it's a wonderful city. I've been spending more and more time in Scotland lately because I got married to somebody last year who is Scottish and lives or lived. Her, her family is still about 40 miles outside of Glasgow uh, in a little Scottish village with like literally green hills, sheep. It, it's you know, on the three days a year that it's sunny, it's absolutely glorious. So yes, uh, we, we've we've had a number of people come and visit us here because you know when you when you typically also when you meet Americans, you'll say to them, "Oh, you know, if you're ever in Scotland, you know, feel free to stay." That kind of thing. Yeah. And then last year, about six different. <laughs> People all said, yeah, sure, we're, we're going to come. And I was like, oh, great. Um, that's brilliant. Um, but uh, no, it was, of course, lovely to see everyone. Yeah, but, no, it's it's a wonderful city, too. We've spent a little bit of time up there, and it's just, uh, I think it's great. But they all got really good weather, and I was kind of trying to sort of say, this isn't, you know, statistically, this is unlikely to happen for everyone. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's a. Whenever I'm there, I'm like, so the weather it's not so bad. They're like, oh, it's never like this, never like this. Yeah. Uh, when I told uh, my partner's parents that I was going to be married, they said, well, what tartan will you wear? And uh, it not, you know, hey, California kid, would you wear a would you wear a kilt? But which tartan? And so I, I, I went out, got myself fitted for a kilt, and wore a kilt for the wedding. And now I've got like the formal attire that I can wear. I apparently I can wear. Um, to all sorts of things when I'm in Scotland. Yeah, I, I mean, I do not possess my own kilt. I typically, I have to say, hire a kilt whenever the, the yeah. occasion. Uh, I The last time I wore one was indeed to a wedding uh, <laughs> that we were both in attendance of. Um, That's right. But uh, my tartan, like the Thompson tartan, was invented in the 70s because all these things are like invented fairly recently. Yeah. I don't want to say it's all made up because everything in the world is made up, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, but the the Thompson Tartan is from the seventies, and thus it is very brown, and <laughs> I do not like it at all. Therefore, I pick another one which I like because I like the colors of it. I did a little bit of research online, and it turns out there's a tartan for every state in America, an official quote unquote official tartan. So I got the California tartan, which was nice blues, blues and greens, which I thought looked great. So I've got California tartan. And, and how do you find the kilt wearing experience? Oh, I thought it was great. We got married in August, and uh, it was. I just, <laughs> I just really enjoyed wearing, uh, wearing a uh, a kilt. It felt great. My son wore one as well. He loved it. Um, he's not. I think he's. You know, he's ten years old. I don't think he's. Once we get into the teenage years, that'll not ever happen. But, um, but I thought it was great. I really felt good. I felt really dressed up too. So yeah, I, I I wore the full outfit and it was thirty one degrees in London or something like that, um, and that's centigrade. And yeah. it it was a 
hot. It was, but, yeah. I, I think the, the effort is always appreciated. Yeah, for sure. Oh, her family was just thrilled. Absolutely thrilled. So it was great. So good. Yeah. Um, let's hear, let's hear about your story now. Let's see. You've been, uh, I went and looked at your about page and you have been doing this for a long time. Uh, it brought back, you have this sort of kind of this history of, uh, Peacock that uh, I was looking at that you posted it to the InfoMac archives in 1992. And that just brought a Russian nostalgia for me. I rem- remembering back then the Inf- InfoMac archives, um, We we can go back to your days at Apple, but I kind of wanted to start with that just to give people a sense of what it was like to make software 25 years ago. Very different than today. Yeah. And uh, I point out that it's 28 years ago. Uh, Time is moving rapidly. Keeps going. It's it's the, whenever I do those posts and it's like, oh, the, 20th anniversary of this or the 10th anniversary of this and then i look at it and go hmm that was five years ago <laughs> the last five years um but yeah it, w- it was a time pre-web uh so you know people were reading uh usenet news groups uh compsys mac mm-hmm. apps was one where a lot of information was posted there were you know, tidbits had was going then and and was primarily distributed through um Usenet and things like that. And we should point out Usenet is essentially li- like Reddit, but everybody acted like a grown-up, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, on some groups anyway. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, but the, yeah, it, it was interesting because, you know, this was a time when, you know, floppy disks were kind of the the medium of choice for distributing things. And I remember downloading uh system seven yeah and i was like took a long time and that was eight floppy disks worth and this was like huge uh and i don't even want to know that's probably you know less than 10 meg or something today um but yeah we uh uploaded software to this thing called the infomac archive which was Mm. like you you emailed a copy of your software to it and then it got uh, replicated across the internet. So there was an InfoMac archive mirror mm. in usually, usually most of the major universities around the world would host one and, you know, some of the companies and things. And it meant, you know, there was somewhere close to you that you could download your software from. And this sort of kind of geographical location, it doesn't really, it sounds strange now, yeah. but yeah, this was, this was commonplace. Um, and one of the things, like, I think uh, our university had one, so it meant you could have, you know, pretty quick access to stuff. Uh, but, yeah, it was it was a... It, I would like to say it was a more innocent time. I'm sure it wasn't, but, you know, it <laughs> yeah. felt like a more innocent time where I would, like, not only upload a piece of software that I had just written, uh, but also put my home address in the about box of the the (laughs) software uh it's like i honestly would not do that today um and yeah so i i wrote pcalc uh it was a my favorite class at university was a user interface design Hmm. class and typically what we would do is they would uh our our lecturer would would take one piece of the macintosh you know, like the open and save dialogues and spend an entire hour going through, you know, the design choices that they made and why they might have done one thing or another thing. And that's probably the most sort of 
foundational class I think that I've ever taken because it was just like when I first encountered the Mac, uh, I could tell that there was something different about it, something better, but it was hard to articulate why it was better. And this kind of gave yeah. me the language for understanding, you know, why it was better than the Atari ST interface, which turned out to be a complete knockoff of of the Mac. Um, and just sort of seeing or thinking about things from from the perspective of a designer, basically. Well, that's kind of remarkable that back then, this would have been late 80s, I guess, yeah? When, um, it, this was like probably 91, 1991, right. around about Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that, that there would be a, a course that went into that level of detail of the user experience of, of you know, applications and, and stuff like that. Um, it feels like so much of that stuff was pretty... I guess we were five, five, six years in since the the launch of the of the Mac itself. But uh, but this idea that was this part of a uh, a computer science curriculum. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So uh, the the you know we did it. We did courses on you know sort of down to algorithms and code and and all that stuff. But there were uh, a number of different uh, modules that you could take and and. You know, I, I wanted to get a, a sort of wide exposure to different things. So like we did, you know, there was a course on graphics, which was talking, you know, about uh, 3D graphics, which was back in the early 90s was, you know, yeah. fairly new. Sure. Um, and and lots of stuff like that. So, you know, it, it was a it was a really good course in, in terms of teaching me about making software is not just writing code. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. And understanding that, and you know, user interface design is something that I've. I mean, that's where PCAP came from. Was we did a class early on, which uh, we were to design a, a central heating uh, controller, like a physical controller that would go on a wall, and we were building this in HyperCAD, and <laughs> it, you yep. know, it was to understand, you know, because it's a simple thing, you know, set a temperature you know, put the temperature up and down, that kind of thing. It's like thinking about all the different possible scenarios of things you would want to do and and all this. And so it was a really great course. And uh, Gilbert, if you're out there, I really appreciated it. <laughs> um, and the that's where PCAL came from because in doing this central heating thing, I had designed this like fake LCD font for the display uh-huh. and uh, a, a bunch of sort of designs of buttons. And I thought, well, I could reuse that. I was trying to learn how to program the Mac. I thought, oh, I'll pick a simple thing to build as my first test app because uh, I didn't know how to program a Mac at this point at all. And uh, I thought a calculator would be a good choice. Uh, so I had the I had like the graphics pretty much done. And then it was just a question of doing the code. And yeah, that's where it came from. And 28 years later, I'm still working on it. Amazing. (laughs) Um, What I remember sort of around that same time period, getting my hands on a copy of this 350 page book called the uh, Macintosh Human Interface Guidelines. And that was right around the time of System 7 and and really being struck by two things. One, the the depth of it, the the level of detail, the the uh, like you said, like learning the different, like spending hours on a dialogue box and what are the difference and what word choices do you use and stuff like that. 
And that was part of it. The other part of it was how deeply ingrained the user-centered aspect of it was about the idea of like, don't make this for yourself, make it for the people who are going to be using it. And to me, it, you know, in my mid 20s, early 20s, probably when I first saw that, I was like, oh, oh, of course, you know, like, um, I thought, you know, that book in particular, and like, as I was sort of preparing for our show, I found a, a PDF of it online. So I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but go take a look at it. It's a really remarkable document from back then. I have a copy of the book sitting about two feet away from ah, me underneath my desk. So <laughs> I, I feel that I'm absorbing the, the knowledge from it uh, even now. Um, but yeah, it, it was it was like one of those books and you sort of read through it and it was like just all these sort of fundamental things that I hadn't really considered. Mm -hmm. And clearly a lot of very clever people at Apple had considered. And the consistency of like the Macintosh user interface and stuff was something when I was working on my own apps, it was kind of like, let's, you know, I can only aspire to, to have this level of, of thinking about things, but I'll do my best. Yeah. 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 Let's, uh, let's take a little break here. I want to hear from uh, one of our sponsors uh, and we'll be right back. This episode of Presentable is brought to you by our friends at Kensington. These are the people who make universal docking stations that are designed to increase your productivity. It's so easy to use. You can get access to far more parts on your laptop and make your nice MacBook, Chromebook, or other laptop as powerful as a desktop. It's plug and play with no drivers, so you can enjoy up to dual 4K displays with HDMI and DisplayLink video connectors, plus USB 3, USB-C, and Thunderbolt 3 with power delivery available. The Kensington engineering team has three decades of experience making these things uh, in high volume manufacturing and all sorts of other IT products as well. Plus, they have rigorous test cycles and quality control. And that means all their products are tested above industry standards. So if you're an IT decision maker looking to find the right docking solution for your organization, check out Kensington's Pro Concierge program and test drive any one of their docking stations today. Visit kensington.com slash presentable right now to check out uh, the Kensington docking stations. That's kensington.com slash presentable to learn more. Thanks to Kensington for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. All right. So uh, you had this remarkable class uh, that sort of opened your eyes to user interface uh, and spawned the the first piece of software that you had written, the calculator for the for the Mac. Um, was that before you were that you went to work at Apple, or how did that all how did that all come together? I had written a, another app called DragThing, which was an application oh, yes. dock launcher app back before there was a dock. Um, and I started that in 94, I think that was released, 94 or 95. Yeah. Um, and uh, in the release notes for both the drag thing and PCALC, it said, uh, you know, if there's anyone out there at Apple reading this, I'd really like to work for Apple. And in later versions <laughs> of the software, that line got changed to be careful what you wish for. <laughs> and... Uh, so yeah, uh, somebody reached out uh, from Apple, and this was in Cork in Ireland. Uh -huh. um, there was Cork was mainly a manufacturing and assembly plant, but there was about um, I think it was two hundred testers and fifty engineers who were working on things, and there was a lot of uh, software testing going on because Apple was trying to have a sort of twenty four hour testing process at the time. So you know the people in Cupertino would have a new build of 
the OS at that point, it was System 7. Um, and it was still System 7 at that point. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this would get handed off to Japan and would get handed off to Europe. And then by the time the engineers woke up, they would have a, a lovely list of bugs that they could deal with. At least that was... The sun never set on the Apple empire is the, basically what yes. they were trying to achieve. Yes. Got it. Um, and, uh, but the, there was this group of engineers and they were working on, you know, not the highest of profile stuff, but they were still working on things, you know, like the installer. Um, when, it, when I joined, in fact, uh, I, the first product that I worked on for a grand total of two weeks was the installer for Copeland, oh. the operating system that was killed, yeah. uh, as I joined Apple. So, <laughs> and people kept working on it. It was quite funny because nobody actually believed that this thing that had been in development for years and years would be, uh, unceremoniously killed, but indeed it was. Um, and yeah, so I, uh, I worked on a number of things, uh, at Apple, uh, and my the first thing the first real project that i worked on was a port of the uh 101 dalmatians disney print studio uh which was being done <laughs> in house for software it was disney's disney interactive wrote it and they had a windows version and it was being done in house because apple wanted software for the performers that were due to come out wow. uh, so that was an that was a an interesting experience because it was my first kind of team project really that mm. I had worked on, um, and so I I learned an awful lot and I did a lot of the user interface code and we had the design handed to us which was also a new experience of you know make this exact thing right um, and just you know trying trying to do it. And to make it exactly the same, but also to respect what the Macintosh side of things would do, um, it was it was interesting. But um, that was a that was a great project to work on. After that, we did 101 Dalmatians. Uh, no, not 101 Dalmatians. We did uh, Hercules, the uh, next <laughs> Disney film print studio. And that was another sort of three four months work on that. Um, and I have still not watched that film. Uh, to this day because i spent so much time looking at the assets for both the 101 dalmatians and the the hercules movies and i was completely fed up with them. yeah uh, I, I can imagine th there's only so many greetings cards and height charts that you can print out before you are jaded with uh, <laughs> the whole experience um but then i i look i was at apple uh between uh 96 and 2000 uh which was probably one of the most interesting times oh at apple uh because so much stuff happened uh when i joined apple i hadn't realized this uh hence part of the be careful what you wish for apple was like one quarter away from bankruptcy at this point that's back in the gilamelio years yeah yep well this was pre pre gilamelio i remember oh. gilamelio coming in and being projected on the giant screen uh in the <laughs> assembly room hall uh and doing the, unfortunately, we're going to have to lay lots of people off. And it was like, oh, what company have I joined? Right. Um, but, you know, then there was the the speculation, oh, Apple is going to buy B and we're going to build an operating system around that. That didn't happen. Uh, and then this guy, Steve, came back and he 
moved very quickly from being a sort of interim advisor to interim CEO. And then mysteriously, we bought Next and all the people from Next were now in charge of Apple. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it was just complete uh, rapid change and lots of things happened. But uh, the next project I worked on uh, was... So I, I've impressed upon you so far my uh, my skills and my desire to work on user interface uh, problems and things. Yeah. So the I had said, oh, I, you know, there's this new operating system. I'd really like to do something for it. So my manager says, you know, we've got the perfect project for you. It's a networking authentication server with no user interface. <laughs> I'm like, well, you know, I I will learn new things, uh, but th this was not the the project for me, really. Uh, you know, it was writing. It was based for when. So, as it turns out, the project that I was working on was this thing called the iMac. We didn't know it was called an iMac. In fact, we didn't know what it was at all, because Apple in the in the reign of Steve Jobs was very much about security and privacy sure. uh, of one organization uh against another in the in the groups because one side of the company didn't know what the other side was doing um somebody did you know steve did but you know we weren't all told what we were working on so this was for when the iMacs were originally going to be netboot computers remember when mm. netbooting was the you know the 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 buzzword of, totally. of the the late 90s and uh as part of that, there was the, if you remember, at ease, uh, which was a sort of thing that you could use in labs and other situations uh, to manage groups of Macs. Yeah. And present a, a sort of simplified um, interface for things. Anyway, I was working on the at ease team, and one part of that was going to be an at ease server component for, for the iMac. And my project got cancelled, <laughs> as many projects do. But before it had been cancelled, I actually, I, I was asked uh, if perhaps there was another project that might be more uh, in line with the sort of things that I was doing, which was Doc uh, for Mac OS X. Hmm. And so I joined the Finder team and I worked on the Finder and the Doc for 18 months before um, it was shown to the public, uh, Macworld 2000, which uh, would have been 20 years ago. Yeah, no, I remember that. I, I, I do. That's um, And so you had already developed DragThing? Is yes. That, that sort of like, hey, let me be on this team because like, I've done some of this before? Well, it was. I think they had seen what I had done and were like, well, this guy knows how to write a, a doc, so why don't we get him to write the doc? Um, and it was an interesting experience because a, the design was effectively done. Uh, you know, it was, uh, handed to me in a kind of now make this thing, uh, which was not really the way I was used to working. But, uh, the other thing was it was extreme secrecy yeah. in that this was Mac OS 10 and Aqua and all this stuff. This was, you know, as I say, this was like 18 months away from the reveal of it. Uh, and, you know, we didn't even see Aqua in terms of the stripes and the, you know, the lickable buttons for <laughs> quite a long time into the project. Um, but I do remember like being told, you know, six people know about this in the company. So if this leaks, we're going to know it was you. 
Right. Don't talk about your work at home. That's sort of yeah. like. Uh, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it was very much, you know, you felt a bit like you're working for the security services because, and and the thing is, this was like a long time ago and Apple is now a trillion dollar company. Mm. I bet it's much worse now. Yeah. No, I would imagine. I would imagine. Um, really, if it wasn't for their supply chain, we'd have no idea what was going on at all. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So what was your motivation then to go from like working on the dock? This start this starts to be some of the more glamorous projects at Apple. Uh to to then just coming back and and uh becoming an independent software developer again. Well, it's an interesting story. Um <laughs> uh it it comes down to uh this thing about the privacy and the security. Um so Steve discovers that um I am working on this from Ireland. And uh, Steve is not happy about this. Huh. And an unhappy Steve is not a, a good thing. Well, th- this was you in particular, not like your team or anything? Oh, yeah, no. I, my team was working out oh. of Cupertino and I oh. was working remote out of uh, Cork. So, But I was the one who was responsible for the dock, which was one of his major yeah. things for the release of Mac OS X. So... Um, I, I shall not repeat the exact phrase that was used to my manager's manager, but I believe Steve backed him up against the wall. And I've had this uh, told to me by people who are in the room and said, it has come to my attention that the engineer for the dock is in freaking Ireland. He didn't, he didn't say freaking, but you get the idea. And I was given the opportunity to uh, move to Cupertino or else. And I said, I don't want to move to Cupertino. I, I like Europe. Uh, there's a reason that I'm here. And uh, they didn't expect me to say that. And then said, okay, well, we're just going to pretend to Steve that you have moved over. <laughs> and that carried on for a year of, of me building up a lot of air miles, uh, enough to get free flights to Japan later on. Wow. Um, because uh, I wasn't allowed to have a honeymoon after I got married, uh, because that was Apple. Um, anyway, a year later, uh, we're coming up to almost 20 years exactly uh, to the day. Um, I get another, you need to move to Cupertino or else. And this time the else was, uh, we're going to take you off the dock and the finder team. And we can't promise you any interesting work ever again. And, uh, I told them Ah. to go freak themselves. (laughs) And uh, as it turned out, what was actually happening was this was in a period where Apple was uh, pulling in lots of stuff that was remote into Cupertino and they were closing down the development group that was in Cork. But they couldn't say to me, we're closing down the development group in Cork because, you know, I would tell the rest of the people there. So they made me this offer and, you know, couched it in the form of a threat uh and i did not take well to it but you know really what they were doing was that uh everybody in fact it was like i think it was two or three weeks after i resigned uh everybody was fired so you know what i should have done is just hung on and then i've got a nice severance wait for the severance yeah <laughs> um so and then somebody else came over and threw away all my code. So oh. uh, 
18 months I, plus the six months or whatever I'd worked on the, um, on the at e stuff. That was like two and a half years, basically, of my four-year career at Apple. Never shipped. Wow. Which is kind of disheartening. Um, and I discovered many years later um, a review by uh, John Syracuse um, of the Mac OS X developer preview that my uh, doc had shipped in. And he talks about the doc in great detail about how it was a complete failure and various other things. And that I'm glad that I never discovered that at the time. Oh my goodness. I found it like 10 years later. Um, I, I'm a, you know, I, I consider John a good friend. So, you know, but yeah. it was just one of those, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't design it, um, you know, a, a, and I went back and I, I did drag thing again for Mac OS ten. Yep. Uh because, you know, I, I I was burning my bridges on all that stuff. Um I think it was probably the right decision. The way some of the stuff I'd architected things probably wasn't the way to go. Um but, you know, I was I was in my I don't know, early mid twenties at sure, this point. Sure, yeah. You know, I look at the people in their early mid twenties that I know and I think, you know, you shouldn't have any responsibilities. <laughs> uh, there's, there's, there's lots of really nice uh, 22, 25-year-olds out there. Um, I just mean I look back at pictures of myself and I was so young. And uh, I would love to go back in time and try again with the experience that I have now to do these things. Oh, but... yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I feel that uh, I feel the same way. I was at Wired Magazine in those years, uh, and we were trying to build the first website, so we had no idea what we were doing. And one of the things I feel so fortunate about is that I worked so closely with this creative director that was, you know, in the in the right at the height of her career, um, and probably already had fifteen twenty years experience when we were doing that. Um, and but I knew HTML, so we kind of paired together, and I really felt like I got an apprenticeship out of it. And that idea of no, we're not equipped to manage corporate politics and fight for our ideas and any of that stuff when we're in our twenties um, is yeah. is uh, is something I try. You know, like this is something to try to foster with. What's the best way to get design education? It is to spend a couple of years working for somebody who really knows what they're doing. But that can yeah. be, that can be very very challenging. I get that. Um, I, I want to ask you some more questions about that, but uh, let's take another break. And this episode of Presentable is also brought to you by our friends at Pingdom from SolarWinds. When you're listening to this podcast, how would you know if your website had gone down? Would you know if customers couldn't click that Buy Now button or access your content? You might stumble across the problem by luck, but that's no good. You need a system. You need something to tell you that everything is running smoothly on your site. And more importantly, when it's not, you need Pingdom. Pingdom detects around 13 million outages every month. That's more than 400,000 outages every day. Pingdom helps keep your sites and the sites you love online. It doesn't matter if you're a startup or a Fortune 500 company. You need alerts about any critical website issues. They'll let you customize how you're alerted depending on the severity of the outage. Plus, they'll track and analyze your website's load time so you can see what's affecting the user experience. If you have a site of any size, you need Pingdom. And Pingdom has a no-fuss approach to getting started. All they need is your URL 
that you want to monitor, and they'll take care of the rest. Go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM right now for a 14-day free trial with no credit card required. And when you sign up, use the code PRESENTABLE at checkout, and you'll get a huge 30% off your first invoice. Thanks to Pingdom from SolarWinds for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. Uh, all right, so you... You left Apple uh, and went back to work. And, and by the way, let me just say how how um, how much of a fan I was of, of drag thing. I use that like I if I look back on on my many decades of, of Macintosh use, there's very little use of the Finder. I've I've always had something like drag thing for a long time. I used Quicksilver for a while. Uh, for people remember that was one of the first like you hit the command space bar and you can like type commands straight in and. Things happen very quickly. I still use Alfred today. So uh, these kind of utilities, I think, are, are fundamental to at least my use of the Macintosh. So thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, Drag Thing was like the first shareware product that I really released. So mm-hmm. it was uh, that, well, it, it paid for this apartment that I'm living in, uh, <laughs> amongst other things. But uh, it was uh, it was a... a a learning experience. It was like me trying to build something like the Finder because I always wanted to work on the Finder. You yeah, know, and I got my got my chance eventually. Um, and but it, it was, you know, it, it lasted a long time. And and uh, sadly, you know, with the the death of Carbon and thirty two bit apps with um, uh, Catalina, um, is gone away. Yeah, but you know, it had nearly. A quarter of a century, which I think is a pretty good innings for these things. For sure. And, and as you as you alluded to, you know, a lot of the sort of power user market went to using these uh, text based launching things. You know, like Alfred Quicksilver, um, that sort of stuff. Yeah. And uh, the the sort of entry level people, you know, they're using the dock and they're using. Um, Whatever it's called, Launchpad. There's so many oh, yeah, yeah. little ways to thing. launch apps, or even uh, Spotlight to some extent. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, that's what I use because there's a very few things that I use. So I just hit you know Command Space and type you know PH and it launches Photoshop and that, and I'm fine. Yeah. Um, but it it was it was an interesting thing in in trying to build a sort of peer to. Uh, uh, like a imagine something as if it were part of the system and you know how would apple do this and you know i went a bit out of control with the the options in, in all the preference dialogues and everything which is kind of what i do which is i i think my greatest weakness as as doing design is you know if i'm faced with a a, a difficult choice between two behaviors i pick both of them um <laughs> but it was really fun to do, and it, it was you know Peacock was my first app, but Drag Thing was like the first kind of full cre- thing that I created. Um, so it was kind of sad to see it go. Sure, and and I, I used to you know get lots of emails from people who are kind of not moving forward onto Catalina because they can't give up Drag Thing, and I'm like, <laughs> you know, I because of the way it's written um, using Carbon, it would be a complete ground up rewrite to to do it and it's not economical to do that because there's only you know i can tell from the software update numbers how many people are still using it and it's in the thousands yeah and 
that's not a big enough market to sustain development of something that I am not even a hundred percent sure what its place is these days. Sure, you know, to be a mod, I, you know, what if you were redoing it all? What would you do now? I mean, I, 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 I say this, and I, it's not true. I'd like to go back to Apple. That's not true. But I'd like to, you know, go back and have another stab at, you know, because the dock's been effectively unchanged yeah. for twenty years. Yeah. Now. Uh, I mean, I've known it for 22 years and there's got to be something better that can be done uh, for this day and age. But, you know, the Mac is kind of frozen in amber, like something out of Jurassic Park. Uh, So, you know, don't change it too much, I guess. And everybody can just die off and the rest will be using um, iOS devices. (laughs) Yeah. so let me shift gears a little bit and ask you a bit about how you make a living at this, right? So it's one thing to make wonderful software, but people have to find out about it. And um, and that, to me, uh, is one of the things. So I work with startup founders all the time. And, you know, and, uh, and the difference now, like we were talking about, you, you send something to the, in 1992, to the InfoMac archive, and you're going to have a pretty good sense that everybody who is into shareware software for the Macintosh is going to find out about it. Uh, you, th- that, that's probably all the marketing you really needed to do. Um, but that's not the world today where there are, f- I, how many calculators are there on the, uh, iOS app store, right? Like, An uncountable number. Uh, I think. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I just, I just wonder, uh, how you think about actually there's a part of your job that's not writing the code. That is, I, you know, I gotta be out there and make sure people understand what, what I do and what I have and, and things like that. So it, it's Difficult because, you know, I could sit here and I could say, well, my success is down to, you know, my clear, you know, genius in marketing and all this. But I don't think that's true. I think my success is down to my past success. And, you know, because 28 years ago, everybody knew my software, you know, a lot of people still knew my software when, like, I was doing the iOS version of PCalc or whatever. And PCalc got bundled on the Anglepoise IMAX uh, for a year. Huh. So, you know, that was a quite sizable number of people had a copy of PCalc on their Mac. You know, and th- there was a large time that PCalc was free. So if you've got probably millions of people who know your software already, it's not a hard well it's hard it's still hard but you know it you have a you're incredibly lucky like so when the version came out for the for iOS i mean also when the iOS version came out it was on day 1 of the app store and there were literally 400 apps on the store yeah. so it was the i think it was the only calculator and you know being there on day 1 uh certainly helps and the, I mean, if I had to give any advice to people starting out is be there on day one, because <laughs> yeah. yep. uh, if you are there for the launch of a new Apple thing, whatever that Apple thing is, Apple will generally uh, look upon you favorably, you know, and uh, like getting seen on the App Store, you know, search on the App Store is really a hard thing. I mean, search on any of these platforms is because sure. there's so so much content. Anybody can uh you know be a developer musician writer whatever these days but 
you know, App Store editorial decides what stuff might get featured and things like that. So if you have something that is, you know, there early on and adopts a lot of Apple new technologies, then you have a much greater chance of getting featured than if you're like a year later. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of my success is down to luck and uh, knowing people. And oh, I mean, I think I don't want to kind of put myself down in the sense that I think if my apps were terrible, the, you know, the I wouldn't do well. But I think having a great app does not guarantee that you're going to be successful. Right. And yes, so it is. A, how do you become uh, visible, like, and one of the ways I've done that, or to make my apps visible, is to try and make myself more visible. Uh, so that's like, you know, going on the podcast circuit, or you know, uh, trying to engage with people on Twitter. Mm. And uh, th there's a, there's a lot of ways. You know, I'm speaking at conferences, things like that. So that you know, that there are ways that I have tried to make myself more visible and known in the the Apple community. And that seems to have translated also into some visibility for my software. Um, and, you know, the, also I do dumb things like uh, hide entire games inside the about screen of a calculator <laughs> and things like that. Yeah. You know, so, so you know, write, uh, yeah, I also write the occasional blog post, which I, I'm very bad at actually getting around to doing but you know there's things like yeah. that that can help kind of raise your visibility particularly as a as a as an independent uh, developer um and you know, being kind of available on twitter and email and and whatever for uh people to talk to you i think also helps people appreciate being able to you know reach out to the person who made something and ask them a question yeah, it's one of the uh, one of the things I've noticed about software that's developed by independent developers or small teams is how they can retain the nature, the personality, the people behind them, uh, and how that changes. It's like everybody's nightmare when the app you love gets acquired by some big company, right? Because like, oh no, it's going to turn into one of those terrible experiences with no support, and you know, anyway. Um, and I think you've yeah. done a really good job of sort of maintaining a sense of personality and a sense of humor uh, and a sense of dedication that this is software that's deeply supported. I mean, I think it, I, I can retain all that because financially it's doing well. So I can make decisions yeah, because it's just myself and my wife. We don't need like to satisfy, you know, venture capital or anything like that. We just need to make enough money to have a reasonable life. Uh, so I can sometimes make decisions that are not the best financial decision, mm. but might be the best creative decision or might just like amuse me. Um, I like putting sort of whimsy into software. And that's kind of one of the reasons why I liked the, the Macintosh really early on was just sort of finding little Easter eggs and things. Mm -hmm. um, yep. And uh, so that that's sort of, personality is kind of what i remember seeing out of software in the early 90s and i trying to maintain that and i can do that as i say because you know financially uh it's not it doesn't matter if 
you know, I spend a day or several months working on an about screen because <laughs> it, 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 you know, it brings me some happiness and it's a creative outlet. And, and one of the things like I did, so I did this about screen, which I, I recommend anyone who has a copy of Peacock, uh, have a look at at least to see what, how I spent 2016 because 2016 was not a great year in terms of, uh, let's say geopolitical uh happenings sure uh so i needed a creative outlet uh for that and that's what the about screen was yeah and oh therapy yes it, <laughs> it, it, it is 100% it's like let's just write something that's really really fun and uh i can just not think about the rest of the world and uh but i took that and uh i've been playing dungeons and dragons over the last year uh with a, a number of people in the mac community and uh out of that and out of the code that i wrote for the about screen which is a lot of 3d graphic stuff which yeah. i had no great experience in doing um and i wrote this uh D dice rolling app yeah uh, which you know i i got the original version because like as we were saying you know peacock's 28 years old drag thing is was 25 or whatever years old um, I don't get to like say select the new project command in Xcode very often. Mm. <laughs> so I decided, okay, I'm going to do something different. And this is, again comes down to sort of software through therapy, therapy through software. Yeah. Um, it was, I'm going to give myself a week to write this dice rolling app, um, you know, from new project to shipping it on the store. And I managed it in two weeks, which I think is not bad. Um, so I created it, I had a, a prototype running in a week and I sort of polished it for a week and I released it and it, it did pretty well. I then spent far too long working on updates <laughs> to it, uh, beyond the point of economical, um, justification. But, uh, you know, it, it was another, it was interesting because it was different in the way that I do design normally, which my normal design practice is. I just write it entirely for myself. And, you know, I have a small group of testers, um, but they typically don't chime in with comments, you know. So I figure if nobody actually says I'm doing anything wrong, it's probably okay. Yeah. But for Dice, the way I did it was um, the... This D&D was done for the Incomparables Total Party Kill podcast, um, which I recommend everybody check out, of course. And, well, I'll put a link uh, to it then. It was, uh, there's a Slack for the members of the Incomparable, uh, like for the, the paying listeners. And the I'd been talking about this Dice app in the, the uh, Total Party Kill channel. And... Lots of people, there was a, a good interaction, you know, so I would post builds, you know, multiple times a day and have people playing with it and sort of talking through as a group how, you know, things should possibly work and, and you know, what features were important to some people and so on. So it was far more of a collaborative design process mm -hmm. with me having the final say, of course, but you know, it, it was, I was trying to be a lot more open to other people's thoughts on things, which is something that I'm typically guilty of not doing, mm. uh, even people in this very uh, building. 
<laughs> but you know, it, it, it was a it was a different way of doing it, yeah. um, and also the rapid development process, and you know, doing these you know very frequent builds rather than you know a build a month or or however I might be doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I noticed that on Twitter, you uh, you had proposed doing a, a simplified interface to the app for kids because they want to be able to roll dice as well. Um, and there being a long thread of discussion of you going back and forth with a bunch of parents about what the best way to do that is, you know. And I'm like, yeah, that's uh, there's an independent developer doing essentially user research and trying to iterate to uh, understand an audience they may not have before. Yeah, I, and. Uh... I, I think you know I'm st- I'm still falling in down into old bad habits of like the the uh, the advanced settings uh, in the app are fairly extensive. You know, it, it's got a it looks quite simple <laughs> on the surface, and and then you know you you start scrolling this list, and it's down into the the very depths of graphical uh, options, but. It's been a fun process to to make something in a slightly different way and to design it in a slightly different way, and and I think being public or at least semi public with it also helps in terms of people feel a certain degree of uh, ownership. I guess is the right yeah. word of, of the product, and so you, you know I've got this core of extremely dedicated uh, fan slash testers um, for for the product. And that's been very helpful. Um, and, you know, it's, it's actually done surprisingly well as yeah. a product. I mean, it's not, it's not like retiring money or anything, but it, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it would keep me in, in Mac Pros at least, or low-spec <laughs> Mac Pros anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, uh, James, I feel like we've kind of come full circle. We started with Rush and we ended with Dungeons & Dragons. Um, not bad. That's a lot of ground to cover. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the 80s are never going to go out. I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, let's see. Let's. Uh, where can people find this stuff? TLA.Systems is the yep. website. Yeah, That's the main website. PeakOut.com for everything PeakOut related. And I am James Thompson on Twitter, and that's Thompson without a P. And you are frequently on uh, uh, here on Relay FM as well. Yeah, I, I I currently hold the joint title of most frequent guest on Clockwise, which I think guarantees that I'm not going to be the on Clockwise for a while now. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I'm on uh, a number of podcasts, or I turn up as a guest. I'm also on the Rebound, uh, yeah. which uh, is another tech podcast. Uh, as a I'm a stand-in, but uh, Lex is off so often now that I, I'm almost. Uh, full time, but uh, and also on the podcasts of the incomparable, uh, including the aforementioned Total Party Kill at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I have to say, podcasts it, it's another one of this sort of trying new things and trying to, you know, I, I was never particularly a fan of public speaking or anything like that. So, um, do things that are perhaps uh frighten you is yeah. another bit of good advice yeah step right into your fears well you did a wonderful job today i really appreciate it so thanks so much for being on the show well thank you for having me 
And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Dean and this was Presentable. Presentable.